Good evening to you all. This is Thanksgiving evening. And the topic of the talk tonight is recognizing the good, recognizing wholesome states which arise in the mind. If you remember a while back, we talked about the four great endeavors. And the first two of them have to do with unwholesome states, keeping unwholesome states from arising and abandoning them if they do arise. But the third and fourth of the great endeavors have to do with working in the field of wholesome states, supporting their arising and maintaining and increasing them when they are present. And this is a very interesting area of practice because for a number of reasons, we seem to have a very hard time recognizing these and giving them equal valence or equal import in our practice. We very often seem to just skip over these to not recognize them, to not acknowledge them. In some ways, to not even value them. We seem to orient towards the hindrances, towards noticing what's problematic in the mind stream. I always like to start by defining terms. So to define the wholesome states, we would say that they are states that have their roots in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion which is another way of saying generosity or renunciation, loving kindness, and wisdom. And these states are considered to be wholesome because they are for our benefit and well-being and for the benefit and well-being of others in this relative realm. But also they're significant because they lead us in the direction of liberation, of ultimate release of the mind. So they have not only relative and practical benefit, but they're a sign pointing to uh, a trail of beauty, if you wish, towards the ultimate freedom, which is the pointing to of the whole Buddhist teachings. So let's give some examples of what these are. So mindfulness, of course, is one of them. And mindfulness always arises in conjunction with wholesome states, all wholesome states. So in order for these others to be wholesome, you should understand that it's assumed that mindfulness is their companion as part of the experience. In addition to mindfulness, 
there are the states that are practiced in doing the Brahma Viharas. Metta, which is friendliness, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. These are also wholesome states. Dana or generosity, the state of generosity could be the doing of a deed, a generous deed, but it also could be a thought of generosity. Or the state of mind that regards things in a generous way. Gratitude is a wholesome state. Wise attention is a wholesome state. The seven factors of enlightenment, which we haven't talked about uh, so much in these talks, are also very much a part of this. And the seven factors of of enlightenment include mindfulness. It's kind of the kickoff. And then investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. So you may be noticing at this point in the list, there's a certain kind of repetition going on here. Some of these are turning up in more than one of these lists. Insight into the three characteristics is a state of wisdom and is a wholesome state. The four bases of power, the aspiration for liberation, virya, which is a kind of courageous effort, clear mind, investigation, the five spiritual faculties, also known as the five spiritual powers when they've ripened and have strengthened, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, the paramis or the perfections of mind, generosity, morality, better known as sila, renunciation, wisdom, effort, truthfulness, a very interesting one. You could say in a way this whole practice is a practice of the truth, the truth of what is directly known. Resolve, loving kindness, metta again, patience, equanimity again. The five controlling faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. To that Pascal talked about the other night, moral restraint due to self-respect. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be that way. And moral restraint due to respect for others. I'm not going to do that because that's not right to do that to someone. So that's a list of them. And you get a sense of what the range is. And they can come up in a number of different combinations. You can have 
uh, a number of these states arising as mental factors at the same time, giving the experience a different flavor. So, for instance, you could have an experience of generosity arise in the mind along with the experience of metta being present. A feeling of care and concern and then in accompanying that the impulse to do something, to give something, to offer something. Or you could have the experience of resolve and truthfulness be present. Well, sila, the impulse towards right speech is there, giving you the power to say the truth, to stand in an upright place of integrity and say what must be said. So many beautiful combinations are possible with these unique mandalas. But we don't see them so often. And I want to focus the a good part of the talk on that fact that we don't see them or we discount them. So these states are easily overlooked and the question is why? (laughs) One is that they're often quite familiar to us because we have many of these states every day. And they're relative prevalence may actually cause them to become somewhat invisible to us. There's so much everyday goodness that we take it for granted in others and also in ourselves. I was driving through one of the small towns around here this week and as I was driving down the road there's a sign uh, that was handmade, hand-painted, colorful, looked like it was made on a piece of poster board or a foam core or something like that. And it was mounted on a telephone pole. And it caught my eye. And as I drove back by, I noticed it said something like, thanks to all the people who helped our son. And I had a few seconds of going, what, what? <laughs> this is like right out in the side of the road. It didn't seem to be apropos anything. And then I realized that I was driving by a cemetery, the gates of a cemetery. And I suddenly had the intuition about why that might be there. And the intuition was someone's son had passed away. There was a funeral. People who were part of their friendship system, part of the community that supported them were part of that funeral and they put that there so when they were going for the burial that it would be seen. Everyday kindness. People don't even think, well of course you would extend yourself to a family you knew where that kind of situation was present. It's no big deal. We usually don't experience these states as problematic either. And we tend to be oriented towards problems. So this is another reason for their relatively low profile. 
they're not necessarily dramatic or riveting the way, for instance, a good hindrance storm is. There is nothing like the arising of all of the kalesas simultaneously in a strong and prolonged kind of manner to catch the attention of the mind. Those are vivid. Sometimes these aren't so vivid. And sometimes the mind has to be at a certain level of subtlety to even be able to recognize these. At least in part because often these states are primarily mental. So they might not have, for instance, the vivid kind of expression in the body that a good old state of rage might have or a strong bout with craving where you can hardly keep yourself on the cushion with the thought of what it is you would like to do as soon as the sitting is over. Another reason we often overlook these is that We may recognize on some level that we do have these experiences, but we have a kind of yes-but attitude towards them. We might not want to be inflated, you know, egoically inflated by the experience of these states, or to be seen as bragging. Very often we're aware of our imperfections, and we kind of approach our mind stream in a very binary way. If it's not 90% pure, it doesn't count. The good things don't count. The wholesome states don't really count because there are other things that are present too that arise as part of our knowing. So we wouldn't want to be uh, tooting our horn. That's an idiomatic expression used in American culture. We do a lot of it, but theoretically you're not supposed to. There's also some suggestion that there might be a biological basis underpinning this relatively low profile for the wholesome states. If we're going to ask the question, is there a biological basis towards the arising of unwholesome states and towards noticing unwholesome states rather than wholesome states, we would have to say, probably. And there's a guy named Rick Hansen who wrote this very interesting book called The Buddha's Brain. He also does some Buddhist teaching on the West Coast. And what he has to say about the nature of the brain and how it often functions is very much on point here. So he says, imagine our mammalian ancestors dodging dinosaurs in a worldwide Jurassic Park 70 million years ago, constantly looking over their shoulders, alert to the slightest crackle of brush, ready to freeze or bolt or attack depending on the situation. 
the quick and the dead. If they failed to duck a stick, which looked a little bit like a predator, then they'd probably be killed. The ones that lived to pass on their genes paid a lot of attention to negative experiences. So he's talking about our progenitors. (laughs) This is our ancestral tree, the nervous ones. So he continues on, he says, your brain has a built-in negativity bias that primes you for avoidance. This makes you suffer in a variety of ways. For starters, it generates an unpleasant background of anxiety, which for some people can be quite intense. Anxiety also makes it harder to bring attention inward for self-awareness or contemplative practice, since the brain keeps scanning to make sure there's no problem. The negativity bias fosters or intensifies other unpleasant emotions such as anger, sorrow, depression, guilt, and shame. It highlights past losses and failures. It downplays present abilities and exaggerates future obstacles. Consequently, the mind continually tends to render unfair verdicts about a person's character, conduct, and possibilities. So there's a reason that suffering catches our attention. There seems to be something inborn given our biological uh, setup and the heritage we have as mammals of the surviving quick uh, and nervous tribe. So that's part of it. But I think there's a whole other dimension to it, which is the role of social conditioning informing self-view, informing it in a way that's negative. The majority culture has a very big role in shaping how we view ourselves and how we judge ourselves. I realize not everyone here is from a Western culture, But Western culture is the one I know the best, so I'll talk about that. And particularly as it's manifest in uh, the United States. I think it could fairly be described as hyper-competitive, hyper-individualistic, with the self being seen as a closed system, a standalone, isolated being set off against and graded against all others. So we've said earlier that self-view, fixed self-view in the Buddhist understanding is problematic. So all self-view has, fixed self-view has within it delusion, but some self-views are more deluded than others. And the description that I just gave you of how I think Western culture shapes the mind is an example of a particular kind of distortion that is very problematic. If you consider our egoic identity, it's really a construct of conditioned views and beliefs which we draw from the larger culture. We draw it from the larger culture 
We also draw it from our individual families and from life experiences. But to just talk for a moment about the larger culture. If we looked at what the larger culture emphasizes and values and markets, it would be something like power, youth, attractiveness, wealth, success, popularity, and fulfillment in sense pleasures. So our self-identity, our egoic view, is assembled growing up in the matrix of this particular value system. And if you don't believe me, when you leave, (laughs) turn on television (laughs) for a while, or go online and see. What are the dangling, shiny carrots that are being used to sell things? If the egoic or the self-identity is formed within this matrix, it tends to adopt these beliefs and preferences very often in a way that is unseen, unconscious. And we're constantly being fed this, often in the community, often by the media, in school, in many different kinds of environments. There's a this new field now called neuromarketing. Has anyone heard of this? Neuromarketing? Where different versions of sales pitches are presented to test subjects and their brain activity is examined and their physical responses are examined so that the people who are researching these products and their display and their sales can determine which approach really rings that chime and makes you feel that you have to have it or you have to do it or you have to be it. This is a very interesting infiltration Uh, into our formerly private (laughs) uh, and somewhat secluded minds. We all have many ideas, feelings, thoughts, wishes, hopes, expectations, aspirations, longings, aversions, repulsions, comparisons, competitions, standards, conscious and unconscious, that are deeply conditioned. Very deeply conditioned. If we can see them as they are, without adding identification and a narrative around it, that narrative having a great big I in the middle, it's not really a problem. But very often we don't see them and we don't recognize their source. We just feel the discontent with how we are. 
but we don't understand that that's a conditioned response. When we don't see these things, don't understand them to be conditioned and to be coming, at least in their initial genesis from sources outside of ourselves, we're very easily taken in. And then these things become the measuring stick by which we determine whether or not we're okay, whether we deserve love, respect, and compassion. And really, who can ever measure up to what's being sold is necessary to us. It was very revelatory when it became a bit more public knowledge that, for instance, pictures of models that are used in magazines and online and things are all altered. They're all digitally changed to improve upon the appearance of individuals who probably already are the zenith of the cultural ideal of what physical beauty should be. Even that isn't good enough. They have to be fixed up. They have to be further improved upon. And yet these are the standards against which we tend to make decisions about whether or not we're okay. That's just a blatant example. These conditioned views can really make us prone to see our real or imagined deficiencies rather than our goodness and good qualities. So if you consider back what I said I thought the cultural values were, you might notice that there was nothing in what I listed as Western cultural values that had anything to do with wholesome qualities of mind at all. It's not even on the measuring stick, is it? Let's see, what did I say? Power, youth, attractiveness, wealth, success, popularity, happiness, uh, and satisfaction found in and limited to sense pleasures. That's that's uh, a long way from the Brahma Viharas, isn't it? So it's no wonder we don't see the wholesome qualities. The mind is not turned towards looking there. One of one of the names of uh, a younger Western sangha, and I think there might be some people from the sangha here is against the stream, (laughs) against the stream. Dharma practice is in a number of senses against the stream. So then the question is, well, how do you practice with wholesome states? Let's say that we see that trying to conform to these cultural norms is nuts and has no lasting value to it, and has a lot of suffering. And we see that's not the way 
Whereas St. Matthew would say something about, do not store up your treasures here on earth, but seek for what is lasting. If we were going to cultivate unarisen wholesome states, how could we do it? What would we do? Brahma-vihara practice. Very powerful method. One fruit of the Brahma-vihara practice is a foundational, reliable loyalty and goodwill towards the self and towards other beings. An instinctual, reflect, reflexive, reliable loyalty to the self and to others. That would be a very important baseline to have in relationship to any kind of self-view. If there's a basic, stable respect and care for the self, kindness is available in practice periods of difficulty and in life experiences of difficulty. There's a kind of reliability to the mind, a kind of sense that the mind on a very deep level is an ally and an asset and won't turn, turn on you when it gets tough. And it does get very... <laughs> very tough in the course of a life from time to time. So let's talk about something that is related to this Brahma-vihara practice as well as insight practice, but the Brahma-vihara practice in particular, which has to do with the Ripening of the three Buddhist personality types. There's been some mention of this from the talks. A little bit here and there, right? You you didn't have a full-blown talk on this, did you? On the Buddhist personality types? I know that I've, I've talked about this in interviews with a number of people. Uh, but I'll put this out for general consideration. Because it's useful. It helps to objectify our understanding of what particular kind of conditioned pattern of suffering we have. It's not that it's who we are. It's what our mind tends to do, what our mind tends to notice, and how our mind tends to react to Vedana in particular. So all of the three unwholesome roots of suffering, greed, aversion, and delusion, are present in us until the mind is fully liberated. There's some expression of this. There's some experience of this. And there's some identification with this. We all have all three of these, greed, aversion, and delusion, but we do tend to specialize. So there tends to be one which is dominant. And some of the people that I've worked with who 
have known about this from previous teachings or experience. When we've talked about it, I'll say, do you know what? Which of the Buddhist personality types you are? They, oh yeah, totally greed. Yeah. Oh, greed all the way. Or um, yeah, I'm, an, I'm aversive. I'm really aversive. Or oh, I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> I thought I might be, but then I thought, no. But how many of them are there again? Okay, maybe diluted. <laughs> might be diluted. But to go through them in sequence and to talk about how they can be transformed, let's start with a basic description. We'll start with the greed or loba types. So the conditioning for these beings, where this is the dominant conditioning, and this is not like your fixed or essential nature or anything, this is conditioning tend to crave what's pleasant. They orient towards what they believe will provide gratification and satisfaction and try to get it and keep it. So they're always looking for more or better, nicer. And this is the suffering of thirsting or tanha. That craving, that burning to get. When it's burning it becomes clear that that's a state of suffering. Lower levels of experiencing greed or craving, it's not necessarily that clear to the mind that there's suffering going on. Especially if the mind still thinks it might get it. (laughs) The fantasy is alive and very interesting. But the second of the types is the aversive type which tends to notice what's unpleasant and or threatening. So this is dosa, D-O-S-A type. And the conditioned response here is to keep an eye out for what's wrong with what they're experiencing. And then they try to flee it or attack it. So there's the aversive type that wants to run away, and then there's the aversive type that wants to do something about it. So this is the suffering uh, of not wanting something, not wanting things, bracing against what's happening. And then the, the diluted types, moha, don't necessarily notice either pleasant or unpleasant unless it's strong, nor do they notice neutral You did. There was a talk that on delusion, one of the Saturdays, wasn't it? Which pretty much spells it out. Given by, interestingly enough, quite a brilliant being, so it makes it clear this has nothing to do with intelligence. So often deluded types are lost, unsure what's going on. And if they do know what the immediate experience is, they don't know what to make of it. So this is the suffering of delusion. And as I said, we all have all three of these. It's just that one of them tends to be in the foreground. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that each of these types with with, uh, bhavana, with mental development and the spiritual 
growth and the growth of insight that comes with it manifests certain gifts. So the spiritual practice is a bit like applying compost to the rose plant. It causes the rose part to grow, but not the thorns. The thorny part tends to wither, and then some of the strengths within the type start to manifest. So the tendencies of mind are still there, but they're repurposed, if you want to put it that way, in an interesting way. So the being that has tendency towards greed develops in the direction of generosity and loving kindness. So the question is, well, why would that be? Because this mind is already oriented towards seeing what's of value, what's beautiful. And when the mind isn't sticky any longer, when the craving aspect of this tendency is ameliorated, then it becomes prone to share what it appreciates, taking happiness and the pleasantness of sharing with others and seeing their goodness. So it ripens in the direction of metta. And the aversive mind ripens in the direction of wisdom. Why? Because it tends to see what could be changed to improve the functioning of things, how things could work together or might work together. So it tends to see causation. When the mind isn't reactively running away or striking out, it's clear and it's able to identify skillful action. And the deluded mind (coughs) develops in the direction of equanimity. Why? Because it's not reactive to either pleasant or unpleasant. And so it's not driven towards or away from things by Vedana. When it becomes clear, it's able to see pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral without bias or preference. Just things, just the way they are. With balance which is a definition of equanimity. And this kind of ripening of the hidden potentials of the mind is an indicator of spiritual growth. It's the product of spiritual practice. So in it, that's all about the Brahma-viharas and their role in cultivating and supporting the development of these wholesome states of mind and how that works. Another thing that can be done to bring these states forward and develop them is to reflect on our wholesome qualities and actions. And I consider this kind of like pump-priming You know, when you're trying to get water out of a pump, sometimes you have to work the handle for a while before anything comes out of the nozzle. Reflection on wholesome qualities and deeds. Boy, this is really hard. 
very often for people to do. Very often when I ask people to tell me what their wholesome qualities are, they can't come up with anything. You're here on a silent meditation retreat for three months or six weeks. You can't, like, squeak something out. (laughs) Like, maybe there might be something, something, something related to goodness that might be present there for somebody who would, like, come to do something like this for three months or six weeks, maybe just one or two little things. Our goodness can often be a shadow side for us. This is very interesting. Often we think that our shadow side has to do with deep secrets of bad things that we're keeping down and suppressing because it's too threatening. There's this whole other kind of not seeing, not recognizing that has to do with what's wholesome and good. This is actually a commonly given practice in some traditional practice settings. I can remember Joseph telling a story about how he was practicing in Asia, I think with Sayadaw Upandita, and at one point Sayadaw said to him, you should go and reflect on your sila. And his first reaction was, oh, my sila, oh, I need to reflect on my sila. And then he realized what was really being said was, reflect on your, your upstanding moral nature. He didn't say, and you have one. He took it for granted. It's very interesting how that falls on the ear, isn't it? Go to your room and think about what you did. (laughs) The Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks upon and ponders upon, that will be the inclination of the mind. It's very useful to become aware of our wholesome experiences, states and qualities and deeds for this reason, because it increases it. When it becomes conscious, it increases, it supports it, it strengthens. Another practice is gratitude practice. Annie gave a beautiful reflection on gratitude this morning. And this is another practice that's very skillful. The Buddha says that gratitude is the primary sign of a person of integrity. Oh, interesting statement, a person of integrity. meaning someone who is truthful and is able to recognize and acknowledge 
what has been given, what has been received from others. Gratitude practice is skillful because it turns the mind towards an awareness of what is already present and available that is good and useful. The mind is able to identify some gifts, some riches that are present, some assets that are there, even if there are problems. This helps to move the mind out of that feeling of scarcity and recognize that there is grace here and there is beauty. Generosity towards self and towards others becomes possible because the heart and mind are no longer compressed by a feeling of lack. If you wanted to do one practice as a daily practice to take home, gratitude practice, keeping a gratitude journal can be quite transformative. To orient the mind towards noticing, recognizing, acknowledging what there is to be grateful for. Other practices related to developing and cultivating wholesome states of mind is maintaining sila, the basic practice of the ethical trainings. There's the practice of dana, the practice of generosity, of giving, of offering. There's the practice of the paramis, the perfections of mind. And in all of this, of course, mindfulness has this most amazing ecological effect. Because the presence of mindfulness has the effect of weakening unwholesome states and supporting the arising of and strengthening the occurrence of and the frequency of wholesome ones. And that's one of the reasons it's spoken of or mentioned as a safeguard, a great protector of mind. So, the last of the great endeavors, maintaining wholesome states already arisen. How can you do that? You can incline the mind towards noting the presence of wholesome states. So you could do it within this context, for instance, by taking a sitting or a number of sittings or a day or a week and basically saying, inclining the mind at the beginning of the sitting to notice and to note the presence of wholesome states. Just in the way you could, for instance, start a sitting by saying, I'm going to note the arising or the passing away of phenomenon, or I'm going to note or notice the, the presence of not-self. In that same kind of way, you can take a resolve or incline the mind to notice this presence of wholesome states. Another thing that you can do is 
to reflect on these states as beneficial and significant. Their arising is a a good thing, a very wholesome thing, even when there aren't fireworks present. When we cultivate what's in our interest, we enter into a kind of virtuous spiral where the seeds are being planted for these kinds of states to arise more and more frequently, more and more of them stronger and stronger forms. If we recognize them, we name them, we note them, mindfulness will increase their occurrence. You can notice their Vedana, which is often pleasant, sometimes neutral. We can allow what sensations are there to be present and to be known. These, these sensations that are there with the present of, presence of wholesome states are often pleasant, if subtle. Is it a wholesome, pleasant, is nothing to run away from? You can even invite them to remain. It only becomes unskillful if you're grasping and clinging and clawing and trying to get them to stay. They, of course, are impermanent like anything else you can experience. And at a certain point, that state will dissolve. But if mindfulness is present, it could very well be followed by another wholesome state. And the more mindfulness is present, the more likely that is going to be the case. And thinking of the practice horizon long term, it's important to know that over time, the mix of mind states that we experience changes. And there are more and more wholesome states and fewer unwholesome ones. The wholesome states last longer and are deeper. The unwholesome ones move through more quickly. And that's the way the practice develops and works with the existing ecology of the mind. So just to close tonight with a little bedtime story for you, or nearly bedtime story. This is uh, by Ajahn Brahm. He says, after we purchased the land for our monastery in 1983, we were broke. We were in debt. There were no buildings on the land, not even a shed. Those first few weeks, we slept not on beds, but on old doors we'd bought cheaply from the salvage yard. We raised them on bricks at each corner to lift them off the ground. There are no mattresses, of course. We were forest monks. The abbot had the best door, the flat one. My door was ribbed with a sizable hole in the center where the doorknob would have been. 
I joked that now I wouldn't need to get out of bed to go to the toilet. (laughs) The cold truth was, however, that the wind would come up through that hole. I didn't sleep much those nights. We were poor monks who needed buildings. We couldn't afford to employ a builder. The materials were expensive enough. So I had to learn how to build, how to prepare the foundations, lay concrete and bricks, erect the roof, put in the plumbing, the whole lot. I'd been a theoretical physicist and high school teacher in lay life, not used to working with my hands. After a few years, I became quite skilled at building, even calling my crew the BBC, Buddhist Building Company. But when I started, it was very difficult. It may look easy to lay a brick, a dollop of mortar underneath, a little tap here, a little tap there. But when I began laying bricks, I'd tap one corner down to make it level and the other corner would go up. So I'd tap that corner down, then the brick would move out of line. After I'd nudge it back into line, the first corner would be too high again. Hey, you try it. (laughs) Being a monk, I had patience and as much time as I needed. I made sure every single brick was perfect, no matter how long it took. Eventually, I completed my first brick wall and stood back to admire it. It was only then that I noticed, oh no, I'd missed two bricks. All the other bricks were nicely in line, but these two were inclined at an angle. They looked terrible. They spoiled the whole wall. They ruined it. By then, the cement mortar was too hard for the bricks to be taking out. So I asked the abbot if I could knock the wall down and start over again. He did have time on his hands, so. Or even better, perhaps, blow it up. I'd made a mess of it, and I was very embarrassed. The abbot said, no, the wall had to stay. When I showed our first visitors around our fledgling monastery, I always tried to avoid taking them past my brick wall. I hated anyone seeing it. Then one day, some three or four months after I finished it, I was walking with a visitor, and he saw the wall. That's a nice wall, he casually remarked. Sir, I replied in surprise, have you left your glasses in your car? Are you visually impaired? Can't you see those two bad bricks which spoil the whole wall? What he said next changed my whole view of that wall, of myself, and of many other aspects of life. He said, yes, I can see those two bad bricks but I can see the 998 good bricks as well. I was stunned. For the first time in over three months, I could see the other bricks in that wall apart from the two mistakes. Above, below, to the left and to the right of the bad bricks were good bricks, perfect bricks. Moreover, the perfect bricks were many, many more than the two bad bricks. Before my eyes would focus exclusively on my two mistakes, I was blind to everything else. That was why I couldn't bear looking at that wall or having others see it, and it was why I wanted to destroy it. Now I could see that the good bricks, the wall didn't look so bad after all. It was, as the visitor had said, a nice brick wall. It's still there now, 20 years later, but I've forgotten exactly where those bad bricks are. I literally cannot see those mistakes anymore. 
How many of us become depressed or even contemplate suicide because all we can see in ourselves are two bad bricks? In truth, there are many, many more good bricks, perfect bricks, above, below, to the left and to the right of the faults, but at times we just can't see them. Instead, every time we look, our eyes focus exclusively on the mistakes. The mistakes are all we see, they're all we think there are, and so we want to destroy them. And sometimes, sadly, we do destroy a very nice wall. We've all got our two bad bricks, but the perfect bricks in each one of us are much, much more than the mistakes. Once we see this, things aren't so bad. So my wish for you all is that you become conscious of the many aspects and experiences of goodness that arise within you and which are part of you and that you not be deceived by the voice of Mara. Mm -hmm.